Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Thank you, Sister Patricia. It's, it's great to have all of you here tonight. Turn to your favorite neighbor or just somebody sitting halfway close and give them a big smile, just a wave. Good to see you. Welcome, everyone. It's great to have you here tonight. Thank you for joining us here on campus. And for those of you that are joining us via Facebook and live stream, we want to say welcome to you as well. I want to give you just a couple of announcements this evening. Uh, first of all, men, we want to remind you that Saturday the 24th, we will have men's prayer in uh, the A Center at 9 a.m. And also, for those of you that have been paying attention related to the Bible quizzing kickoff, I want to remind you that that will be Saturday, October 1st, Bible quiz kickoff in the A Center from 5 to 7 with Sister Courtney Kenson. So please keep those things in mind. Before pastor comes, I just want to leave you with a quick thought. Um, Psalms chapter 3 says to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge or submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I have to travel somewhere, I always look for the most efficient route and get me from point A to point B. And usually I want the route that's going to take the least amount of time and cause me the least amount of trouble. The one, I want the one that's going to take me to where I need to be with as much ease as possible. And whenever I look at Waze or Google, Google Maps, something never, never Apple Maps. Don't, I'm not an Apple Map fan. I'm a Waze guy and Google Maps. But whenever I look at those, sometimes I'm a little surprised to see that the quickest route is not always the straightest path. Have you ever seen that before? What looks like a complicated route or a series of twists and turns that I didn't anticipate actually turns out to be the best way to get me to my final destination. Now, of course, if I tried to figure the route out on my own uh, without, uh, without using a map or GPS, there is absolutely no guarantee that I would get there on my own. Whenever it comes to guiding us through life, there are no better directions to follow than the ones that God has given us. Christ is a great example. And not only does Jesus see beyond the twists and turns, but he also actually created the destination. He's not just charting the path. He made where you're going. And of course, he wants us to get there in the best way possible. And all he asks is that we trust him with the directions. So here's your challenge, those of you here at Bible study on Wednesday night. Whenever you wake up tomorrow morning, let your first prayer, your first prayer, be one where you call on God to guide your steps. Let him know that you trust his directions. Today, tomorrow, the rest of your days to come, he knows the best way to get you there. Amen. God bless you this evening as pastor comes. Thank you, Jason. And I look forward to his thoughts when he service leads on Wednesday night. Appreciate that very much. Great to see all of you. Thank you for being here tonight and uh, always appreciate uh, a good turnout for Bible study and uh, pray for our children upstairs and kids church and our youth group next door for youth service. 
and hopefully they're doing the same for us here tonight. Uh, what a splendid service this past Sunday. Um, just thought the presence of the Lord was here in such a dynamic way, such a powerful way. And I'm certainly thankful uh, for that. <clears throat> I commented this past Sunday and applauded Brother Jason's Bible study last Wednesday night. And um, I've, I've thought about it numerous times since then. And um, I have completed a, a four-part series on relationships. And um, I just felt just compelled I guess uh, he challenged some of my thinking and what have you and I felt compelled tonight to go in a very similar direction again so I would like to read tonight from first Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9 I'd like for everybody to hear this verse and you will but if you could give a little extra attention to it try not to let your mind wander I made the statement either last Sunday, Sunday before last in preaching, that the best thing we could hand down to our kids more than money and things and what have you is a true example of how to build a relationship with God uh, to teach them what true Christianity is about and what have you. Um, this is what David is trying to do with his son Solomon in this verse. And thou, Solomon, my son, he said, Know thou the God of thy father. I like the way he worded that. He gave himself a title. He did not say, I want you to know the, the same God that I've known all these years. He put a weight on it. He put a priority on it, if you will. He put a precedent. And then he said, serve him. Know him like I've known him. And then serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. Serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of thee. But if you forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. A powerful word, powerful, powerful passage of scripture. I have learned in my own life, and I've certainly learned in working in the lives of others through the years, when it comes to our kids, and most everybody here tonight has at least one child, obviously some have more, but it seems a pattern has developed, at least in my lifetime that as a parent, the more I would serve the Lord and, and love him and love the truth, love the Bible, love the truth, and, and do my best to obey it, it was easier to steer my kids in that direction. But if I, when I think back and I, I can remember times when I floundered, then I noticed my kids would flounder. Oftentimes, when both of my kids lived at home, looking back now in retrospect, it seems like their spirituality had a whole lot to do with Sister Murph and I's spirituality. So this is what I've learned. 
if you love the truth and steer your kids in that direction, they will love it more. In most cases, they'll love it more. But if there's a part of you that wants to sin and enjoy the world and all of that stuff, your kids will plummet in that direction. Uh, it's not typical of everybody, but, but generally speaking, that's what happens. It is imperative, it is imperative that we know him, that we know the Lord. It's imperative that we do that and that we love his truth. It's imperative to do that. So I want to teach for a little while tonight just in the form of a question, very similar, Brother Jason's, uh, the context of his study last Wednesday night. Do you know him? Do you know him? It was the desire of David that his son Solomon would know God. The only way Solomon would be able to serve God with a perfect heart and with a willing mind was to know him. That applies to us today. And it is my strong desire that each one of us would know God in the same measure and with the same results. And I believe in order for that to happen, God must enlighten our eyes in order for us to truly know him and to know the things of God. I believe tonight very firmly that the highest knowledge possible to man is the knowledge of God. You will never, ever be able to learn everything there is to know about God. As much as scientists have never been able to understand everything in the depths of the sea, nor in the expanse of space, you'll never be able to. You can live a thousand lifetimes and never exhaust everything there is to know about God. But the highest knowledge possible to man is the knowledge of God. And this cannot be gained by human reason alone. You, you don't get it out of a textbook. You don't even get everything you need even out of the Bible, in my opinion. I don't mean to discredit the Bible. But the Bible said that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth will lead and guide you into all truth. There has to be that, that urge of the Holy Ghost. This knowledge is acquired only as God reveals himself to man, whether it be through nature, conscience, history, or providence, in the Bible, or by teaching, or by prayer. It is possible, however, to be acquainted with what the Bible says and know where certain truths are found in the Bible and yet not really know the Word. Leading educators have said, and we have some here tonight that, that may agree or disagree, but my study says that leading educators say that there are four degrees of knowledge. There's four degrees of knowledge. The first degree is the ability to recognize certain facts, things, or ideas. So you start off with the ability to recognize certain facts, certain things, or certain ideas. For example, any one of us can identify the picture of the President of the United States, even though we've never met him. We may have seen our mother bake a cake. We saw the finished product, but we have never personally experienced the process. That's the first level of knowledge, first degree of knowledge. The second degree of knowledge is that 
is that of the ability to recall facts or information, to be able to recall a scripture, a shopping list, uh, certain identifying features of a person, yet there is no knowledge by actual experience. You remember what is on the shopping list, but you haven't yet taken the items from the shelves, pushed the shopping cart through the checkout area, and then paid for the groceries. I have to stop here in passing. I was walking through Walmart yesterday, which is a rare occasion for, occasion for me. I was walking through with Sister Murphy. I had to pick up something specifically and, and, and that I needed to go get it. And I uh, had an idea. I saw somebody pushing a, a shopping cart at Walmart that was just completely full. And I thought how interesting it would be to just catch that person not looking and just take that cart to the checkout and just, you don't have to walk through the store. They did all their, all your shopping for you. That, that cart is full. They can't accuse you of stealing. It's not theirs. They haven't paid for it yet. So you just take it and you just check out and you get all these surprises when you get home. You may find things that you like that you've never tried before. And I just think that's brilliant. If any of you try that, let me know how it turns out. I'd be real curious to know. <clears throat> the third level of knowledge is, the, uh, is being able to explain learned facts to others. To tell why each item of the, of the groceries is on the list. For example, to say, I am buying these eggs, flour, sugar, salt, vanilla, and powdered sugar because they're, they are all the ingredients that I lack at home in order for me to make a cake. That's the third level of knowledge. It is not until the person actually goes home and mixes the proper amount of each ingredient together, heats the oven to the correct temperature, bakes the cake, frosts it, and eats a piece that he can say he has a full knowledge of that cake. And that's the fourth degree of knowledge, acting, acting upon what a person is aware of and understands, becoming a participator in the experience. Educator says that's the fourth degree of knowledge. It is vitally important that each one of us know God for ourselves. Don't anybody sit here and say, well, I know God. Do you know all there is to know about God? If you don't, then there's some more knowledge of God that you can gain, right? I think we can all agree with that. So it's imperative that we go beyond merely knowing about God and accepting the facts of his existence to experiencing him fully on the inside of us. The Bible must become more than just a rule book to live by. Now, I've heard a lot of people in the past 10 years especially call it a rule book. And there is so much more to the Bible. So much more. The word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly and work in us mightily to conform us to the image of Christ by transforming our very nature. Consider this tonight. A poor self-image oftentimes comes from a lack of achievement. A lack of achievement stems from failure to follow through with our good intentions. Those good intentions came because our emotions were stirred 
And sure, our emotions do motivate us, but decisions made on the basis of emotions lack the foundation to enable us to follow through. I know that's a long piece of information, but it's true. And I have found oftentimes the people who struggle the most in their relationship with God are those who know very little of the Word of God. They don't study it, uh, very rarely read it. I have encouraged people, uh, you don't have to go to a bookstore now and buy any book, you can get whatever you need on the internet. Um, I was had a conversation with Noah uh, just last week at, that he says, he said, Papa, and at the level of quizzing I'm at right now, I, I can't just memorize verses anymore. I have to know context and, and subject matter and you know some history and all that kind of stuff. Where can I get that information? And I was very happy to sit down with him for a little while and uh, share with him some things. But there's just a few resources you could have to, I, I've pleaded with people before, just go home and, and just Google the love of God and just start reading and just see what you find. There's some stuff you that's going to be stupid and you'll, you'll have to toss it aside. Hopefully I have enough ability to do that. But to pick a subject, pick the blood of Christ and study it. And it, it makes the word of God start coming alive because you'll find stuff that, well, I didn't think of that before. And I, I, I didn't see it that way before. And, man, I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, the Bible starts becoming alive in your heart and mind. Let me move on. We may hear a fiery message and be moved to pray more or become a soul winner only to find ourselves falling back into our previous pattern of unconcern and even laziness. Having our emotions stirred is a part of the process of change, but there has to be more. You may be able to recognize, recall, and even explain God to others, but He has got to become so much a part of your life that your actions show that you have truly come to know Him. I had a conversation with someone Sunday. I actually want to develop a message off of this has been through a very difficult time, a very challenging time. I'm aware of some of it, some bits and pieces, not all of it, but uh, I've been through a tough, tough, tough time this year. And, uh, and the person said, but it's interesting that, that friends that I've made recently or whatever, they said, you're so happy. And uh, she's told them her story, and, 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 but they said, you're so happy now and what have you. And I said, well, to me, that's a byproduct of the knowledge of God, taking the word of God and manifesting it in your actions, you're like gold that's been refined. You've been tried and you've come out pure. And people see that. So spouting off knowledge to people, that's a good thing. But it's not always enough to win people or to persuade people. People want to see it in our actions. Again, the highest form of knowledge is to know Christ Jesus. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Yet, yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I'm going to give you his resume in just a moment. But he wanted, he wanted everything he was, everything he owned, he counted it as nothing. I would give it all, the, all away if I could just know God more. He said, I've, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung, 
that I may win Christ, that I may win Christ, <laughs> that I may just pull him to me, that, that I could captivate him, um, that I could somehow get myself around him. Anyway, let me, let me hurry on. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, he said, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. One translation said the driving and consummate desire of Paul was to be in the resurrection of the dead. When the Lord comes to rapture his people, that was his goal, that was his plan. When I die, I want to make sure that I am resurrected. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what I have to do. And he felt like the more I knew about Christ, the more I could be like him, and that would make that even more possible. He longed for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I want to know it majestically. I want to know it beautifully. I just don't want to go through the normal conduit of a student listening to someone lecture me about God. I want to know him and the regal splendor in which he lives. If, if, even if all the wealth and honor that could be conceived of were his, he would be willing to renounce them in order that he might obtain to the knowledge of Christ. He would be a gainer who would sacrifice everything in order to win Christ. Paul had not only acted on this principle when he became a believer, but he had afterward continued to be ready to give up everything in order to win Christ. He held everything else to be worthless in comparison with that knowledge, and he was willing to sacrifice everything else in order to obtain it. He highly valued this knowledge of Jesus. This apostle had not really known the God of his fathers except in a limited way. Before the time of his conversion to Christianity in Acts chapter 9, prior to his encounter with the risen Christ, he had diligently studied the scriptures, sitting at the feet of the learned instructor named Gamaliel. You all know that story. One of the most brilliantly educated men of that time. Paul was tutored by him, taught by him. Paul had a lot of knowledge, and his knowledge of God had been sorely limited. He had been able to quote these scriptures, and he could quote uh, could quite possibly even explain them to others. But his understanding of the will and purpose of God was flawed. In Acts chapter 6, you know the story. When they stoned Stephen, Paul held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen. And this made an impression on him. It did something to Paul that there's something about this God that Stephen knows that I don't know. And I am certainly far more educated than Stephen. So Stephen had knowledge of God. He understood God. He, he had a relationship with God that even though Paul had all this knowledge himself, Paul didn't have that kind of relationship. Jesus Christ alone perfectly knows the Father, the Bible teaches, and reveals him to man. Jesus said in Matthew 11, all things are delivered unto me by my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. This knowledge of God in Jesus Christ that Jesus is talking about, Jesus said later, is literally life eternal. This knowledge of God is life eternal. 
Jesus said in John 17, And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In other words, living eternally after death in Christ, that can only come from Christ. You have to know him. You can't learn about him in a book. You can't learn about him in a classroom. You can go to Bible college and learn all of that. It's, it's not going to save you. At some point, you have to come in contact with Jesus himself at some point. This is life eternal. This is the source of eternal life, or it is a manner that it is to be obtained by knowing Jesus. Simply to have heard that God is one God, that's not knowing him. That's not enough to know him. Simply to know that Jesus is a savior, that's not to know him. To have been taught in childhood and trained up in the belief of, of, of all the things of God, that doesn't mean you know Jesus. You know, it's kind of a hard subject. It's, it's, it's as challenging as faith to me, teaching a Bible study like this. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this way. I've, I've had many experiences with God in prayer, usually by myself. Probably nine times out of ten times, the, the, the moments I've had, intimate moments I've had with God, I've prayed alone. And there's something that happens when you're alone with God. There's something that happens. You can feel destitute, you can feel desperate, or you can feel on top of the world. One of the greatest compliments ever received, when, it was a number of years ago when we were evangelizing, we were preaching for Brother Terry Bushnell in Indian Village. And uh, I went to the church. Church started about 7.30 that night, I think. And I got to the church about 4.30, 5 o'clock. I was prepared for the service. We'd already eaten. And I told Sister Murph I was going to go to the church and pray, which I did oftentimes. Got caught up at a prayer meeting. I lost track of time. I didn't hear anybody coming in out of the building. Brother Bushnell told me later he said when I walked in there was such an, an, an environment here there was such an atmosphere I just sat down and listened to you pray for a little while and then I piggybacked on your prayer and I remember that I remember it vividly that I had such a moment with God and that someone else was able to piggyback on that on that same moment uh, he testified about it a little bit later to the church I remember uh, when our church split when we were in Baker. I was destitute, and I've told some bits and pieces of the story. I don't know if I've ever told the whole thing. It'd take too long. But I decided on the, 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 the first day of, that, of, of 2007, I believe it was, in the, the first Monday in January of 2007, I told Sister Murph I was going to the church, and I was going to stay there every day at least to 3 or 4 o'clock until I got an answer from God. It didn't come until the end of February. Went every day, four, five, six hours, every day at the church, Monday through Friday, every day, every day. And finally just reached a point where I was completely desperate. I was just completely and totally desperate. And uh, I stood right over there against the wall, and I saw some literal uh, manifestation of things going on in that building that were not typical and normal. And I knew that God had finally come to me, and I just kind of almost went unconscious and just fell on the floor I don't know how long I laid there on the floor, but I had a moment with God that day that I've never gotten out of reading a verse of Scripture, quoting a verse of Scripture, preaching a sermon, 
teaching a Bible study, teaching a home Bible study. This is what I'm talking about, and these are things that the new modern-day church shies away from. Now, I've seen people get in a prayer meeting and go into wildfire. I've seen them do crazy things, and I'm sure some of you have. But I would to God this coming Saturday that, that our men would show up in the A Center for men's prayer and determine, I'm going to touch God today before I leave. I'm not just going to stand here and, oh, God, and look around and eye the donuts and can't wait for that second cup of coffee when prayer's over. But put all that aside and say, before I leave here today, I'm going to touch God. You, you, you don't understand what it does to your mind. You don't understand what it does to your spirit to know him. We all understand and we're all adults in the building tonight. But a boy can date a girl and a girl can date a boy and all that kind of stuff. But until they marry and that relationship is consummated, they really don't know each other. There's things that happen. And that's that intimacy that I'm talking about when you're, you just, God just overwhelms you. And there's things that happen to you that you don't experience on any other level. That's what I'm encouraging Grace Church to do. The Apostle John spoke for all the other apostles and followers of Christ in his day when he said, there are some things we know, and I'm writing these things so that you also may know these great truths. I want you to notice what he said. He went through that four levels of knowledge, that, that four levels of knowledge, four degrees of knowledge I mentioned at the beginning. In John, 1 John 5, 13, he said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. One, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's level number one. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, degree number two, he said, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keeps, keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. It's the second level. The third level of knowledge, verse 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. And then the fourth level, he writes in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and life eternal. This is the God that Saul came in contact with in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. This is the God he immediately began to preach as he convinced the Jews by proving from the scripture that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Paul had that moment. He said at the feet of Gamaliel, he was born and raised in the law of Moses. His mama taught him. His grandmother taught him. He had all this pedigree. On and on and on it went. But he didn't know him until Damascus came. Until he was blinded for three days. And he saw things in his blindness that he had never seen before in his life. That's how we should know God. We should have that moment. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's look at that for a moment. And to know the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ. 
to know this, to feel this, to have a lively sense of it is one of the highest privileges of the Christian. Nothing will so much excite gratitude in our hearts. Nothing will prompt us so much to a life of self-denial. Nothing will make us so benevolent and so dead to the world as to know the love of Christ. But then Paul went on to say, which passes knowledge, there seems to be a slight contradiction here in expressing a wish to know what cannot be known or in a desire that they should understand which cannot be understood. But it is the language of a man whose heart was so full to overflowing. He had a deep sense of the love of Christ. He expressed a wish that they should understand it. Suddenly he has such an apprehension of it. And he says it is indeed infinite. No man can attain to a full view of Christ. And it it has, it, it has no limit. It, it was unlike anything which had ever been events before. It was love which constrained Christ to become incarnate, to leave the heavens, to be a man of sorrows, to be reviled and persecuted, to be put to death in the most shameful manner on a cross. The apostle desired that as far as possible everyone should understand that great love which the Lord Jesus had manifested for a dying world. This is what, if we could see that, if we could understand that, if we could know him like that. And if we ever do, there'll never be anything that Jesus would ever ask of us that would be too much. And then he said that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. What an expression, how rich and glorious. They were to be full of God, he said, full of God. One commentary says it means that you might have the richest measures of divine consolation and of the divine presence, that you may partake of the entire enjoyment of God in the most ample measure in which he bestows his favors on his people. It was to be with all the fullness of God, not with partial or stinted measures of his gracious presence but with all which he ever bestows. This kind of fullness is spiritual. It's elevating. It's pure. It's godlike. We, according to the scripture, dwell with God. We walk with God. We live with God. We commune with God. And as Christian people... We should be like him. I want to take a serious and very sober turn in the last few moments of this Bible study. But it will illustrate my point, And then hopefully it will cause all of us to sound an alarm in our lives. One that needs to be sounded as it may be applicable or not. I just mentioned with fervency that the New Testament teaches a fullness of God. A to be, the Bible said oftentimes in the book of Acts that people were filled with the Holy Ghost. They were full of the Holy Ghost. I was reading today in a book, completely another subject. But that God don't just give 
increments of his spirit to people. If God is going to give you the baptism of the Holy Ghost, he is going to fill you up with it. He don't ration. He fills you up. It's the fullness of the spirit. I find that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 an analogy. That he said to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I believe that all intoxication is prohibited in the Scriptures. No matter by what means it is produced, there is, in fact, uh, but one thing that produces intoxication. In this case, it's alcohol, the poisonous substance produced by fermentation. The substance is neither created nor changed, increased or diminished by being distilled. It exists in the, 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 the cider, the beer, the wine, after they are fermented. And the whole process of it being distilled consists in driving it off by heat and collecting it in a concentrated form and so that it might be preserved. So Paul said, wherein is excess? <clears throat> That word only occurs in two other places in the New Testament where it is rendered riot. It means that which is unsafe, not to be recovered, lost beyond recovery. Then that which is abandoned to sensuality and lust, debauchery and rivalry. Drunkenness is a sin that seldom goes alone, but often involves men in other instances of guilt. It is a sin very provoking to God because it evokes a false sense of joy. It evokes a false sense of joy and, and it evokes a, a false sense of strength and courage that is only short-lived. And alcoholic substances are harmful to our bodies and to our minds. Paul's point and my point tonight is instead of being filled with wine or being intoxicated by other things, if you know him, you would be more than contented and more than satisfied with being filled with his spirit. Whether it's wine, drugs, prescription drugs, or just lust for the world, period. The indicator, the reason that lust is there is a lack of being filled with the Spirit. I find it interesting that the people I know, and I'll go as far as to say even myself, when I am full of the Holy Ghost, when I have a fresh picture of Jesus in my mind, I don't crave anything outside of Him. I've heard people say it for years, and I've lived long enough to experience it. We all know people who have come from a background of drugs and, and alcohol and all that stuff and said, when I found Jesus, I didn't need any of that anymore. I've lived to that point. To be, to know him in such a way, God will, I don't want to use the word infatuate, it's, it's too emotional for me, but for lack of a better word at the moment, I'm off my notes a little bit, but God can infatuate people. God can just have you dumbfounded. God can get you so excited about life 
He can give you so much hope and promise. Who would want to default to anything else? I don't say that disparaging. It's just a question. We could not be guilty of any excess in our endeavors after being filled with the Spirit. That was Paul's point. We ought not to be satisfied with a little of the Spirit, but to be filled with the Spirit. I don't want it to be said that I just go to church. I want it to be said that I'm in the church. I don't want it to be said that I know God. I want it to be said that I'm in God. I don't want it to be said that I was just a casual Christian. Somebody wrote a song about that years ago. I want it to be said that the man walked with God. The man walked with God. I want people to know, and I wanted to live that point like Abraham did when the New Testament writer said that he was a friend of God. I want to know him. Does anybody hear me tonight? A prayer room is the best place to start. An altar of repentance is the best place to start. An altar of commitment is a great place to start. An attitude of praise and thankfulness and worship is a great place to start. There's all kinds of places to start. And God can come move down any of those avenues to say, Hey, I want you as much or more as you want me. And I'm here for you. I will let you know me, but you have to pursue me. I want to tell you right now. I'm going to give you a no-brainer. I've thought of it before. I have. Sister Murphy and I, and I've said this many, many times, we were friends long before we ever dated and became romantic. But I wonder if we had never married, would we still be friends? I could have pursued a friendship with her and her with me for the past 46 years, but I can promise you that I would not know her like I do today, only accept that I married her. If you want to know Jesus, you have to have that kind of relationship with him. It goes beyond just friendship and just saying I go to church and what have you. It's being disciplined. It's <laughs> Paul said, I'm willing to, to go and do whatever it takes just so I can be resurrected from the dead. I guess I've lived long enough now, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, to have seen my own mortality. Just kind of come to realize I'm not going to be here forever. And every day, it's every day, every day, I think of it many times every day. If the rapture took place right now, would I go? If I died right now, would I be right with God? And I think about it all the time, all the time. All the, it drives me crazy sometimes. But I just want to be right with God. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to be resurrected. I want to know if the rapture takes place, I'm going. I want to know that. And I can only know that through knowing him. It's just not knowing about him, but it's loving him and it's loving his truth. So be filled with the Spirit is best clarified as keep on being filled. Be continuously filled with the Spirit. Y'all probably didn't see it, but four, three or four Sundays ago, I walked down during worship and uh, gathered up some of our young fellows around me. And I said, y'all are waning a little bit. You're making me nervous. It looks like the fire's going out a little bit. And I said, I need y'all on fire. I need you on fire. I need your worship. I need your inspiration. I said, y'all stay on fire for God. Stay on fire for God. This past Friday night at night of, uh, night of worship, Braylon, uh, 
I, I could see through when the, when the service began, something just started rolling on the inside of him. He eventually ended up over there in that corner, and he cried and sobbed and talked in tongues. I don't know how long. Just for a long time, long time. And he came and sought me out after church that night. He said, Pastor, I'm on fire for God again. And it just took a moment. It just took a moment to be filled back up. It wasn't this long, grueling process of God. What do I have to do? And what do I do? It wasn't none of that. He just found a little place over there and said, you know what? I'm going to get on fire. I want to be filled up again. I don't want to be part filled. I don't want to be half filled. I don't want to be three quarters. I want to be full of the Holy Ghost. And I desire for every person at Grace Church. We're all going to manifest it different. And because somebody worships different, somebody else doesn't mean somebody has more Holy Ghost than somebody else. We all manifest it different. But bottom line in our heart, we should all live every single day with a desire that I want to know him and I want to be filled. I want to be full of the Holy Ghost every day, every day, every day. And as we increase in the knowledge of God, and I'm about done, he fills us with the knowledge of his will. The more we know about him, the more we understand and know the will of God. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. I'm not going to take time to read it. It is the will of God that everyone come to the knowledge of that truth, the Bible said, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, this is what I want everybody to hear. And I'm closing. I debated on making this a Sunday morning sermon or a Wednesday night Bible study, and here we are. Just so we could have a good altar service, maybe. Watch what happens if you're not careful. Listen, Pastor. Some are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They never can reach that point where they just love it. They just settle down into a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. There's some people, the Bible said, that can't do it. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he described it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. You'll see it on the screen. Ever learning, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It just sounds like such a paradox to me. How can you learn, 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 and not come to the knowledge of the truth? Why not? Notice verse 8. As Janese and Jambres withstood Moses, Old Testament. So do these also resist the truth. They hear it, they learn it, and they know it, but they resist it. Men of corrupt minds reprobate, reprobate concerning the faith. I'm going to jump into that, the meaning of the word reprobate in just a moment, but they're not able to know the truth because they resist it. Why do they resist truth? Because their minds have been corrupted and they have become reprobates or unprincipled people. How did their minds get corrupted so that they became reprobates concerning the faith? The answer is revealed in Romans chapter 1. They held the truth in unrighteousness. Listen to that. I know the truth. I know what the Bible says. But I'm not going to live what the truth demands. So they hold the truth. I possess the truth, but in unrighteousness. 
need to think about that. They had known God, but they did not glorify him as God. Neither were they thankful. Eventually, God gave them up to uncleanness, and they were corrupted, and their hearts were darkened. Paul said in Romans 1.28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not convenient. Reprobate means unapproved. It means you know enough for God to make a judgment. You have enough knowledge and enough experience that God can make a judgment. And you don't approve. You, By implication, it's worthless or literally, it's literally worthless or morally worthless. When the Bible said to do those things which are not convenient, convenient means to reach to and becoming. So I know the truth, but I'm going to reach to something else. I'm going to become something else against the backdrop of knowing what is right. They did not retain God in their knowledge because they did not like it, is what the Bible is saying here, one commentator said. They would neither know nor do anything but just what pleased themselves. It is just the temper of carnal hearts. The pleasing of themselves is their highest end. They, there are many that have God in their knowledge. They can't, they can't help it. The light shines so fully in their faces, but they do not retain him there. They say to the Almighty, depart, as it is referred to in Job 21, 14. And they therefore did not, do not retain God in their knowledge because it thwarts and contradicts their lust, and they do not like it. It's in the knowledge of the reprobate. God is in their knowledge, but they do not acknowledge him. And there's a difference between knowledge and acknowledgement. The pagans knew God, but they did not and would not acknowledge him. So answerable to this willfulness or, or this willfulness of, of theirs in opposing the truth, God gave them over to a willfulness and the grossest sins, here called a reprobate mind, a mind void of all sense and judgment to discern things that differ so that they could not distinguish their right hand from their left hand when it comes to spiritual things. So see where a course of sin leads and into what a gulf it plunges the former child of God in at last. It's interesting to me when you read, and I'm closing, I'm done. But when you read the story of Pharaoh and Moses in the book of Exodus, at first Pharaoh hardened his heart, but afterwards God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Thus willful hardness is justly punished with judicial hardness. Willful hardness is just, justly punished with judicial hardness to do those things which are not convenient. I hope everybody's listening. If you harden your heart, that's one thing. But when God does, you're in trouble. I would to God tonight, if you stand with me, I would to God tonight yes. that every one of us could go home and kneel beside our bed or in the living room chair or the sofa. Just ask God 
take me down that path of repentance and commitment. God, I've hardened my heart. But God never wants you to harden. met with a pastor friend recently and he said there's literally a movement of a lot of these younger preachers and pastors who've gone way away from apostolic faith apostolic doctrine what have you they're still a part of the UPC but they're rallying their troops to elect people like them so they can turn the whole United Pentecostal Church into something that it's it's not. It's people being turned over. It's they've hardened their hearts a long time ago. Now God's doing it, and they can't see it. I was reading today, and a pastor used this illustration. It's a very well-known pastor. But he said he learned of, uh, there was actually some men that had gone out of his church into ministry and they were doing away with standards and holiness and as so many people have gone. And uh, they were literally having a service. There was a bunch of them that got together, including two or three of these men who are now pastors out of this kind of a senior pastor's church. And so the senior pastor still had some rapport with these men, and so he called one of them and he said, look, I hear y'all are doing this service. They were wanting to celebrate that they had been liberated. And I've heard that statement used many times. They've been liberated from holiness standards. And um, he said, um, I would like to come, and I'd like to have a debate. I'd really like to have a debate. And um, he would said his premise for the debate was, to use scriptures that supported the biblical teaching of holiness and that all of these people have denied and then ask them to prove how and why these things are not valid anymore. So the man was real quiet on the phone and he said, well, I'll have to call the other people and he took him very serious. He said, I'll have to call people, man, and just see, you know, if they'd be <clears throat> open to anything like that. He said, I mean, you'd be the only one there Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And he, he said, well, "I'd have to call some people and find out." And the man said, "Well, let's talk about the the parameters. Let's talk about the rules for the debate." He said, um, "Y'all go first. You, you make y'all give you five minutes, and you go first. We can have a moderator. Y'all go first. Take you your five minutes and say why well, all these things are okay now, and then um, um, then you give me five minutes." But he said, "I just want you to understand when my five minutes comes." I'm going to have it set up to where I'm going to have 20 very scantily clad women, like strippers, clothed, but very little, come out the side door. He knew the church, come out the side door, and I want them to dance and twirl and all of that all the way across the front. I'd like for them to do that Las Vegas style kicking and all that. And the liberated man said, oh, no, 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 we, we can't do that. That's just completely out of the question. Absolutely not. He said, why? 
because the same verses in scripture that you say that's not appropriate is the same verses that tell you the way y'all are living is not appropriate. It's not appropriate. And it just gave me a lot of food for thought after hearing Jason teach last Wednesday night. And this is what happens to people when they have opportunities to know God and turn down the opportunity. So I want to ask everyone to consider here tonight. Chart you a path. Men, we're praying this, uh, uh, the 24th, this coming Saturday. Show up and pray for yourself and pray for your family. Pray for your kids. Remember what I said at the beginning? That if you're weak in your relationship with God, your kids will be weaker. More often than not, they're going to be weaker. So consider them. Consider them. Please know him. Please know him. Father, tonight we love you. It's been a sobering Bible study. Yes, it has. But it's been a Bible study filled with biblical truth. It's been one that's not taught much anymore. It's not taught by men that used to teach it. And it grieves our heart tonight. But I pray tonight that Grace Church don't go that path and it don't fall in that pitfall. Don't ever come to that place. You're a loving God. You're a kind God. You're a merciful God. You're a grace God. You're a God filled with grace. But you're also a holy God. And if we would get to know you, we'd get to know you. We would understand that. The grace of God leads us to your purity, to your cleanliness, to your holiness. Commitment leads us there. Praise and worship leads us there. It's one of your crowning attributes is the fact that you're absolutely perfect and holy in every way. I pray, God, tonight that we could know you, that everybody in this building tonight could know you again, that we would commit ourselves to know you, that we would all, between now and even the end of the year, that we would chart a path for our lives, that every time we pray is going to be intimate, that every time we pray is going to be desperate, it's going to be sincere, it's going to be honest. God, help me to know you. I want to know you. I want to win Christ. I want to be raptured. If I die, I want to be resurrected from the dead at rapture just want to be in heaven. The world just don't mean that much anymore. Pray for Grace Church tonight. Draw us closer to you. Keep us in the palm of your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. God bless you tonight. Love on one another and continue to love the Lord. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.